Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm thrilled to have with me today Justin Harvey, who is the founder and host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast and a fee-only financial advisor. And we'll get into a little bit of what that means and why that's significant. But we are going to talk about financial advising, planning, and student loan management for specifically physicians and anyone in healthcare, and especially anyone in healthcare with any kind of significant loans. Justin, great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jade. It is a pleasure to join you today. So, Justin, let's start with you. You're a CFP, which I think stands for Certified Financial Planner. Tell me a little bit about that. What is that and how did you get there? Yeah, thanks. Uh, So I have been a financial planner. This is my 10th year in the industry. And CFP is, I would liken it to the MD of the financial planning world with uh, the the important caveat that it doesn't take nearly as much work. That's good. Definitely (laughs) Um, Or as much debt. So um, uh, I've been um, doing comprehensive financial planning for individuals and families for the last 10 years, as I mentioned. And during that time, I have been sort of working towards the CFP, which is a um, a credential that signifies that um, I have gone through a curriculum that covers all of the major areas of financial planning. So it's insurance, retirement planning, investments, taxes, estate planning, and, um, <clears throat> and that I you know, have been, at least at one point in time, proficient in those areas. And then there's some ongoing education requirements for the CFP that are, are required to maintain that designation. Great. And so is that – have you always had an interest in doctors and, and uh, even specifically you – your podcast is geared toward anesthesiologists mm-hmm. and um, pain medicine specialists. How did, tell me a little bit about how you ended up with that subspecialty. Yeah, great question. So there's a couple ways to answer it. The first and most obvious is that my wife, uh, Sarah, who's from Portland, Oregon, um, I, I met her and she was a med student at the time and we were doing this delicate dance across the country of where am I going to match and how serious are we and what do we want to do about this? Uh, and, and she was very passionate about anesthesia. So as our courtship continued and she came to Philadelphia where I reside and, um, <clears throat> and I, I became more familiar with the landscape in anesthesia specifically and also in pain because a lot of uh, pain practitioners come through an anesthesia residency. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew in familiarity with some of the unique planning opportunities there and some of the unique considerations having to do with, you know, what is your partnership set up like if you're in an anesthesia practice, if it's a private practice, or if you're with a, an anesthesia corporation, you know, how are those contracts structured? What might you expect from an employment situation and from an income growth opportunity situation? And as I kind of kept peeling back the layers, I thought this is a great place to develop a deep expertise to be able to give really amazing insight that is kind of of an unparalleled depth to in these very nuanced areas that a financial planner who's has more of a broad focus wouldn't have time to say you know i can tell you the difference between the four biggest providers of uh, anesthesia care and how they treat their employees and like as an anesthesiologist who's thinking about a job change you would love to know that and that's something that i uh, enjoy continuing to learn more about yeah that's really great that's great. And to me, it seems like the difference between, you know, going to a general surgeon for your specific 
thyroid issue or going to an endocrine surgeon, right? It's, so it's someone who has really developed an expertise in an area that you care about. And so it makes a ton of sense. And I would imagine that that's very appealing to people in anesthesia. So when you think about um, doctors, uh, or really, I imagine anybody in healthcare, but the, the stereotype is certainly doctors, right, are really bad at financial management, right? It's a truism, I guess, maybe it's true, it's certainly, I think, true for me, that we tend to just not have much of an idea of what we're doing with our money or how to invest it. Um, and so that, I think, is probably the um, service that you and, and people who, who specialize like you have can provide is to help doctors with uh, trying to figure out how to do better. Mm -hmm. So there's some interesting kind of um, uh, choices that go into that. If you are a doctor, um, I'll, I told you earlier when we were chatting that I initially, uh, right in the beginning of intern year, got taken in by a uh, company that was offering to help me with student loans and completely screwed me up for a year. Um, luckily, I recovered from that. But, you know, if, if let's take the student out there or the resident out there or the early attending out there who is thinking, all right, I don't want that to happen to me. What would you recommend? How can they go about, if they want some help, finding an advisor? Now, you mentioned you're a fee-only advisor. What does that mean? Are there other types? Uh, when someone's looking, what should they look for? Great question. So there's different layers to this question. The first, in, in the context of student loans specifically, and then we can kind of broaden it out a little bit more. Um, the first thing I would say about student loans and handling them well is you don't want to stick your head in the sand, first of all. Like, they're not going to go away, and you just throwing that statement straight into the trash instead of opening it doesn't make your problem get better. And I'm putting problem in air quotes here because especially for med school or any other advanced care practitioners, it's a great investment in your future potentially um, if you you know manage it appropriately. So you should be proud that you're working in a profession that requires a lot of education and just embrace it and come up with a plan to optimize your situation as best you can. So in that context, I'd say you should do one of two things with your loans. Um, do a lot of reading and, and make a good decision, uh, knowing that the implications are significant and it could be as easy as, you know, checking a box to start repayment rather than going into forbearance or something like that. And that decision, that one minute that you thought about that could be a, a five figure impact or more potentially. So I would say, A, become an informed consumer and B, if you don't, if you're intimidated by that and, and some people have pretty complex situations, especially if you have a, a two-physician household and maybe one is going for PSLF and one's going to private practice and there's a lot of moving parts and the residencies don't line up in the same time frame and it's just – it's difficult to optimize. There are um, specialists out there that can help you do that um, and that can, can – you know, they spend all their time doing stuff like this. And, uh, and they can get you a conclusive answer of, we've looked at all the options, all the different repayment plans. We looked at PSLF and refinancing and consolidation, and we think the best thing for you is here. And they give it to you on a silver platter. Yep. Um, and PSLF is public service loan forgiveness. Right. Feel free to do that to yep. me as many times no as you This is like our medical uh, abbreviations that we don't think about. You've got your financial one. Um, a couple of things that I would point out is um, there, there's two sort of big uh, thresholds in student loans that you don't want to cross unless you're doing it on purpose because it, it can make a big difference. Uh, one is refinancing. So if you're, um, you got a bunch of, you know, med school debt for, say, and, and you're considering a refinance, what that means is you're taking all these loans that many of them are probably in the federal system. If they're, they're federal student loans and you're pulling them out of the federal system and you're going to a private bank like SoFi or Ernest or credible or one of their friends. And you're saying, uh, dear SoFi, I want you to please pay back the government, and I'm going to now pay you the money that I owed the government. 
And SoFi says, hey, this is a great deal because we're going to charge you 5%, and Uncle Sam was charging you 6.5%. And at first blush, this may think, you may think, well, that's, that's a great idea. Except there are a lot of protections in the federal system that you lose, and there's also the, the ability for forgiveness that you've totally chucked out the window. And it's important to know, once you've refinanced, once you've gone to SoFi and they've paid off your federal loans, you can't get back in. You got locked out of the house, the front door is bolted, and there's no getting back in there. So before you refinance, make sure, make absolutely certain that PSLF is not in play and not an option, because that's a that can be a huge, huge benefit, especially... Ironically, the more specialized you become, the longer your training is. If you do an anesthesia residency and then a critical care fellowship and then cardiac, and you're six years into training before you start making an attending salary, you are going to, you could, that could be a, you're positioned to really benefit significantly from PSLF. So you shouldn't refinance, most likely. You should see what does it look like for me to stay in the PSLF world. So that's the first thing is refinancing. Don't do that unless you're sure. Um, And the second thing I would say is consolidation. So, Sometimes um, borrowers can make the, the, um, the assumption, and this is true in some cases, where you need to consolidate your loans in order to get access to certain types of payment plans. And this can be beneficial. Except what this also does is it resets any payments that have been accrued thus far towards something like PSLF. So if you're all the way through making your way through residency, making payments that would qualify for PSLF, you're in residency, so you're in a, an academic center and it qualifies – um, and then you get to the end of residency and you think you want to consolidate um, just to clean up things administratively. Um, that is a could be a grave error because what you've done is you've taken these loans that you've made potentially 48 qualifying payments on and you've hit the reset button. So now you have two consolidation loans instead of like 12 different line items, which you were trying to get rid of anyway and trying to squish them down. But in your administrative zeal, what you've done is uh, you've reset the clock and now as an attending, you need to start at payment number one towards PSLF, and at that point, it's it's tough to even have those numbers make sense. So you might yeah. want to just refinance. So that's interesting. I actually wasn't aware. So you could have 12 different federal loans or some number of federal mm-hmm. loans be paying them in a way that would qualify toward public service loan forgiveness, but then you think, oh, it would just be easier to consolidate these, and that, that would start you all over. That's absolutely right. Yeah, okay. and that's very – because what you're doing is you're taking these loans because, you know, every semester you take out another loan to pay for that semester of med school. Then you get to the end, and you've got a big pile of loans, and it's every different line item that you've taken out. And you can – like at the end of med school, that could be a, an opportunity to consider consolidating. But once you're in practice, you don't want to do it unless you mean it, and there should be some math behind that to determine that it's the right course of action. Yeah, so this is great. These are all really important things that one might not know about uh, based – certainly this isn't taught in medical school. So so I want to get back to the question of how might – let's just assume for a second that most of us would need help with this. How would you go about uh, finding someone to help? Is there – as I said before, you're a fee-only um, advisor. There are people like you out there. What other kinds of advisors are there? Great question. So I also do a little bit of work for a company called Student Loan Planner run by my friend Travis Hornsby. Um, and Travis has, at this point, he's also a, a physician spouse like I am, and he has basically made it his life's work to uh, combat um, the epidemic of student debt in our country. Mm. And he's built like a really impressive um, business with Student Loan Planner. So I do a little bit of work with them. So I would say you could go to Student Loan Planner and get an analysis there. Um, and what we at Student Loan Planner do is we will look at all the different options that I mentioned and say, yes, forgiveness makes sense, or no, it doesn't make sense, or yes, refinancing does or doesn't make sense. And, and you can know that all the options have been vetted, 
and that this is a great resource for you. Um, it's also important to note, if you're looking at other alternatives, you want to make sure that you understand, and this is going to be a recurring theme for us, you want to make sure you understand the compensation model and the way it works. And if you're working with somebody who's a quote-unquote uh, you know, student loan analyst or uh, advisor, that they are not um, going to be pushing you towards strategies in which they're going to get compensated. Yeah. Because some of these places that would call themselves a student loan advisor, and potentially this could have been the one that, like the one you mentioned before we, we started, yeah. Jed, um, they, their whole point is to get students in the door who need help, and then they say, refinance with us, refinance with us. And they have these sweetheart deals with somebody like SoFi, and, and they'll push all of their, um, the people whom they help to refinance their loans when it might not be in their best interest, but that's actually the mechanism by which that advisor gets paid. So if they don't do that, they may not be able to get compensated. So you should know how the people you're working with get paid. Yeah. And so fee only means what? Fee only means there are in the, in the financial advisory context, it means there is a strict bifurcation of advice and product. So as you're looking at a financial planner more broadly, outside of the scope of just student loans, I always recommend finding a fee-only fiduciary financial planner. And those are technical words. Fee-only means they're literally not allowed to use any commissioned product that they get compensated for. So the way this functions is if you came to me, Jed, and said, hey, I, you know, here's my financial plan. I need some help. What should I do? I said, okay, it looks like you and your wife maybe need some life insurance policies. Insurance policies are commissioned products, at least at this juncture. So the only way you can get an insurance policy is to do a transaction and where a salesperson is going to get paid for that. So if I'm a fee-only advisor, what I do is I say, you need these two policies. These are what I recommend in my experience. This is what you should get. And then I'm going to connect you with my, uh, my friend, the insurance advisor, and I'm going to send you to him and say, insurance advisor, this is what my client needs. Please give them this. Mm -hmm. And then you know, I have no incentive to do anything. I have no financial arrangement with insurance advisor. And um, it, it helps to remove a conflict of interest that would otherwise be a bit of a moral hazard. Yeah. So in other words, if you were the one selling me the insurance policy, you'd obviously have an incentive to steer me towards the ones you get commissioned for. Exactly. Yeah. And there are companies where their whole financial planning process could be, and if you view it in its least charitable format, could be nothing but a, a long sales process to say, here's the 16 products that you need and that I can sell you. And by the way, I'll give you the plan for free. Right. Right. And those are sometimes worth what you pay for them, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, right. So you want to be very careful. And if you have the choice between a fee only um, advisor and an advisor who is going to charge you commission based on what they sell or make commission that way, you just want to think hard about that. And I've heard from others, uh, uh, certainly and from you as well, but we have uh, my wife and I are, have friends who are financial advisors. And, and I think the consensus amongst the people we know is clearly a fee-only model is the way to go to feel like you're getting really genuinely good advice with your best interest in mind. That's right. And let me make this caveat. Um, there's a lot of good people in this industry, and many of them only want to do what's best and have come up sometimes in, in business models that are not, I would say, optimized for removing every possible conflict of interest. And many clients can still be well-served by an advisor who may also sell you an insurance policy or, or something like that. So it's not like... I don't see it as black and white. Sure. Some people do, like the good guys and the bad guys. It's not that simple. But if you're starting from scratch and you can pick an advisor, you're not going to know them either way, and you can pick somebody who has a business model that is optimally configured to remove conflicts of interest and one that has a little bit more um, moral hazard to navigate, 
why would you not just pick the one that is clear cut? Right. Now, let's say somebody thinks, all right, you know, gee, I don't know anything about this, but I also don't have any spare money to spend on an advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, where would you direct them? Are there good resources that you think can be helpful to avoid some mistakes? Great question. So the first thing I would say is um, there's uh, an association called the XY Planning Network that has really served to bring down the cost of fee-only advice in recent years. So even if you think, well, I can't, I don't have a million dollars to invest, how can I ever get help? If you go to the XY Planning Network, their, their website, they have a portal there where you can see a bunch of different advisors, most of whom will serve clients virtually. And for an hourly fee of like one or two hours at, you know, 150 or $200 an hour, and usually two hours of advisory time is enough to say, like, if I had, like, three or four pretty significant financial problems that I needed an expert to weigh in on, that is the best three or $500 you will spend because you can put a plan in place that this advisor will help you on, in, like, a sort of hit-and-run kind of way. They're just going to give you something, and then you've got to run the playbook. But you can, you can do that and still access good advice at what I would say is a very affordable price point. Um, short of that, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a long, <laughs> it's a long list of blogs and books. And in this day and age, um, the, you know, in the, in the physician world, the one that there's a couple big ones, the white coat investor obviously mm-hmm. is the most prominent, uh, Jim Dolly at, um, he's a, he's an EM doc and he started, uh, this blog in 2008 to help educate physicians about finances. So if you're in the medical world, you don't even need to be an MD or a DO, um, that is, a really great resource. You can just get on there and start reading. And you may find uh, as you learn about more and more things that you didn't know, it might be a good time to engage an advisor. Or you might think, oh my gosh, I love this. I want to optimize my own situation and do it myself. And I want to spend, you know, maybe a weekend a month, like making sure everything is buttoned up. Yeah. And that's great. And some doctors actually go from practice of medicine and then they like finance so much, they become financial advisors themselves. Absolutely. That's a really interesting um, potential career path as well. And I would imagine you know, obviously, if you have an MD and you've been a physician and then you become a financial advisor, you would have some interesting insights for physicians specifically. That's right. Yeah. So the white coat investor is one. Certainly, we, we hear about that quite a lot. Um, any other blogs or, or books or anything that you recommend? It, it totally depends on kind of the where, where you're at. So Dave Ramsey has a lot of great stuff. Um, I, I only I have to sort of like recommend him with an asterisk because I don't like some of his investment philosophies and his he, I, I, I've heard him give a lot of bad student loan advice. So if it's not student loans and it's not investment strategies, I'd say he's great for cash flow and taking taking control of your finances and just starting to lay a foundation that's going to be a, a solid starting point for building a financial future. Um, those are the ones that come immediately to mind, I would say. Great. All right. And certainly people can Google and find lots of other ones out there. That's but, right. And then you had mentioned before your friend, and I don't remember what you said his name was, but who had started a, a, a program that lets you kind of plug in your situation and find out some advice on whether forgiveness is good for you or not. So this is Travis, yes. the, the student loan planner? Yep, yeah, the student so loan planner. He, uh, yeah, and his blog is awesome for um, student loan insights. He's got a great calculator there that uh, you can actually download it and run it yourself. And if you are able to come to a conclusive conclusion there, then you, you don't even need to hire Student Loan Planner, and right. that can be a really great resource. And that blog is available for free. To yep, okay. studentloanplanner.com. Great. All right, so lots of great resources. So let me ask you, we've talked about um, a couple of mistakes that physicians tend to make, at least with debt, right? And one would be uh, consolidating after already having made some payments that potentially would qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Another is... Uh, privatizing or um, uh, 
uh, refinancing mm -hmm. uh, when you may then lose the ability to be able to get public service loan forgiveness, among other things. Are there other common mistakes you find that um, folks in medicine tend to make when it comes to finances? Great question. Um, the first one that I've actually run into a handful of times in the last couple of weeks has to do with loans again, and it's, it's forbearance. So sometimes if you're a resident and you move to you know Boston or New York, a very high cost of living, San Francisco, high cost of living area where you know many of the very well-reputed medical programs are, you might think, oh my gosh, my rent is like $1,800 a month for a studio and I can't make ends meet or more than that potentially. And, and therefore I'm tempted to put loans into forbearance. That can be um, a really, really critical error because if you can afford on an income-based plan like revised pay as you earn, even like a couple hundred bucks a month potentially, if you can pay that $200 a month, what that enables you to do is it unlocks this interest subsidy in this sp specific plan, revised pay as you earn. It un unlocks this interest subsidy where the government will pay for half of any interest that would accrue in a given month. Um, so, for example, if based on your loan balance and everything, there's $1,400 of interest that would stack up in a month, and you can pay $300 of that. And in a normal situation, that leaves $1,100, and $1,100 would get thrown on your pile that you're going to have to pay back at the end of residency. But if you're on a revised pay as you earn, you pay $300, that leaves the $1,100, and then Uncle Sam says, hey, there's $1,100 left, I'm going to split this in half, I will pay $550, and then $550 will get piled on. Now, that's still a lot of money to pile on, but with that $300 payment, you're buying another $550 or whatever the number is of interest subsidy. So when you forbear, you just take all of that and throw it out the window. And you're throwing away a lot of free money. You know, they say, well, if you get a 401k, you should make sure you get the match. This is like the uber mega match of 150% of whatever you're paying on your loans. So if you're doing forbearance, um, especially like in training, you should have a darn good reason. And probably if you can't find like a couple hundred bucks a month in your, you know, in your uh, budget, hopefully there's some changes you can make to be able to get there. So I, I'm sitting here, as you can see, but our listeners can't with my eyes bugging out because I didn't know about this and wish I had known about this when I um, was a, uh, a resident. Um, I mean, I did make uh, qualifying payments, but not on that program and did not know about this uh, interest on this interest, um, uh, what did you call it? Subsidy. Interest subsidy. Yep. Um, so, I mean, that is amazing. And I think you are exactly right. Some people just figure I'm poor, I'm a resident, I make a small salary, I can't afford um, payments, and so I'm going to do forbearance, not knowing this is an enormous benefit mm -hmm. um, to, to doing the revised pay as you earn. Uh, and it sounds like I imagine that if you're – especially if you're a single. I think this is a little harder if you're married to That's someone correct. making a real salary. That's correct. But if you're a single resident and you have your forty dollars or $50,000 salary and that's it, um, your payment is going to be pretty low. That's right. Yeah. And absolutely, if you're single and you're a resident, you should have a good reason to not be on revised pay as you earn. And this is not financial advice, so please have a qualified professional weigh in on your specific situation. Excellent. <laughs> good good uh, cautionary note. So forbearance. <laughs> Yep. Be very careful. Yep. Think hard about it. Get some help. What yep. else? Other mistakes? Um, another common one that I see is especially for early in – like newer in practice attendings, there can be this um, – and Jim Dolly at White Coat talks about this. If, if you can continue to – he calls it live like a resident. And this has like so many negative connotations that I want to try to un undo here. Um, if you can continue to delay gratification for a little bit longer. Obviously, if you're, if you're like a 31-year-old anesthesiologist, you've been – all of your friends started making money when they were 22 and you've been med school and training and just grinding and grinding and grinding. But if you can do it for like a little bit longer, you can set yourself up 
and, and you'll have like a bulletproof financial situation. But it requires you to not, as soon as you sign that offer letter and get that signing bonus, to go spend it and and give yourself a, a living situation where you have high fixed costs on a monthly basis. So there's this. I call it the most important financial variable in a person's life, and it's net free cash flow. What that means is on a monthly basis, you make a certain amount, you spend a certain amount, what's left over? That what's left over month or that what, what's left over amount on a monthly basis, it's, it's determinative of how much financial flexibility do I have to pay down debt, to save for the future, to provide for my family. Um, and if you can get that number bigger, then especially as a newer in practice attending, you know, you're making a lot of money and you, you don't have the million dollar house yet, hopefully, and you don't have a $80,000 luxury vehicle yet, hopefully. And if you can stave those off for a few years and really crush your debt and then perhaps buy your first home that is beneath your means, uh, that is not the American way, but it is absolutely the way to financial independence. If you, if you can do that and then continue to delay for another handful of years, not for forever, you can, you can live quite well, you know, once you hit 40, if you do this for the first handful of years, you're, you're really setting yourself up to be maximally flexible, um, have a lot of freedom from, you don't need to work, you know, you don't need to moonlight and take vacation and do locums in order to make ends meet and pay for your million dollar house. You can, you can work a a job that you're happy with and Mm -hmm. your spouse can have flexibility and you can actually know your kids. And if you, if you don't, if you stave off these high fixed expenses at the outset, it's all your friends are going to be doing it. So you've got you've to like say, I don't want to go with the flow. I want to swim upstream. I want to make these decisions that I know my family is going to benefit from for years to come. It's going to be hard, but you can do it. And if you can, it'll, it'll, it'll change your world. Yeah, and I've heard that a lot. I, um, I made the pitch to my wife uh, that we should uh, <laughs> continue living exactly as we had when I was a resident, and uh, it didn't fly. But I think it would have been a good call, and certainly I think for a lot of people out there it is. Um, all right, so those are some great kind of advice things that people tend to do wrong. Other other things come to mind, or are those the main ones you wanted to? Um, talk about? Those are the main ones, and one other that I would just kind of mentioned that sort of dovetails with the second one I just mentioned there is understanding the context of you know your sort of social strata. So if you're a medical practitioner, especially for physicians, you're just you're you hang out with a lot of people who are in many cases like the, some of the richest in our society, and, and they're going to it would be normal for them to spend a lot of money to have a certain lifestyle and recognize that if you swim in that pool, recognize that this is a weird little corner of the world where even in our country, most people don't have this kind of income, the kind of wherewithal to be able to do this stuff. And if you look at the big picture and see yourself not as a doctor among doctors, but as a physician among all of society, it can help temper your perspective and, and hopefully make some of those decisions when you feel kind of peer pressured to like get that country club membership you can realize this is a weird little bubble of the world that I'm talking about, and I'm actually already way on this you know, end of the scale, and, I, and I, maybe I don't need to do that in order to be happy. Yeah, I think that's great advice. All right, so we've talked about loans a little bit. I want to kind of zoom in a little on loans. Public service loan forgiveness is a, a big deal. Um, let's talk a little bit more about what that is. Um, there's been talk about is it going to last? Is Congress going to do away with it? Are they going to put a cap on it and say, you know, this was really meant for like firefighters and not mm-hmm. for doctors? Mm-hmm. And so tell me a little bit more about that. What is it and, and what what's the, what is all this stuff in the news? Should we be paying attention? Is it going to last? Yeah, great question. So public service loan forgiveness is a, a program instituted by the government that is intended to reimburse in a tax-free manner the loans of any person working for a 
qualifying nonprofit 501c3 governmental entity or or similar. And if you make 120 qualifying payments, which is 10 years worth of payments, while you have so yeah, let me actually take a step back. There's a handful of requirements to qualify for PSLF. So the first is you need to have the right type of loans. So this is federal direct loans. So if you're looking at your your uh, your loan download on the NSLDS login or with your servicer, it should say direct in the title. Um, if it's a direct loan, that means it will qualify. Uh, the second criteria is you've got to be on a um, qualifying repayment plan. So that means an income-driven plan. So income-driven plans, the main three are IBR, income-based repayment, pay-as-you-earn, and revised pay-as-you-earn. So you should probably be on one of those three if you're trying to make qualifying payments. The third is you need to be a full-time employee as defined by your employer. So 1.0 full-time equivalent with wherever you work. And that looks differently depending on where you work. Some places it could be as little as 32 hours. Um, and, and some places it's more, obviously. Um, and then you've got to make uh, monthly payments for 10 years. So 120. They don't need, note here, they don't need to be consecutive payments, but they do need to be cumulative. So if you take a year off to like spend some time with the family or you work in private practice for a couple of years and then you come back into academia, you can still... Uh, capture the PSLF benefit. It just may delay things. Um, and if you if you check all those boxes, uh, then you're 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 moving towards PSLF. And then once you get to the 120, your your debt is wiped away tax free. Um, this is um, something that's really beneficial for you know physicians who continue in academia. And this is probably talked about some. Um, if you're in an academic center, if you're in a, a community hospital that's a, a nonprofit, or in the VA, um, and you're going to go through training, and then so your residency years will count. And, and this is why this is really beneficial for physicians is because if you spend five years doing a you know an anesthesia residency and then a, a fellowship of some kind, you spend five years making between fifty and seventy thousand dollars. Five years making income adjusted payments of between three and four hundred dollars. So what's happened is your loans, which were maybe $250,000 when you started residency. Now they're, I don't know, like $400,000 and you're five years in. And so what happens is if you're five years down the line, your balance is now 400000 And in the last five years, you've only paid, I don't know, uh, three or four grand per year on this massive, massive balance. Right. And then some of the repayment plans, um, pay as you earn and IBR, also have a cap. So there, there's this ability to navigate this if you're in the PSLF track where you can if you're on, for example, we talked about revised pay as you earn. So if you're on repay for the first five years, and repay has an important difference between pay as you earn and IBR. Um, the difference is that repay doesn't have a cap. So if you're making $60,000 and paying $300 on your loans, and then you get an attending role and you're making $320,000, your payments are going to go from $300 to $2,700 or something like that. Right. But what you can do is stay on repay for residency and then switch to one of these plans with a cap, like pay-as-you-earn, for example, where your payment will never be higher than your 10-year standard payment, which you'll have to confirm with your servicer what that is. But it's a, it's a fixed number. Just call it $2,000. It depends on your total loan balance. And so in that context, you can make $300,000, dollars $500,000 and never pay more than that cap. So this is beneficial because you pay very little for five years, then you get a capped plan, and then for your five years of earning a lot of money – you're paying the maximal that you have to to stay qualified. But what happens is you're not even going to come close to paying off $400,000 of debt that you have at the beginning of your attending career. Right. And so there's a big tax-free benefit at the end of the line there. Absolutely. And so the, the, where I find this to be really tricky is this. 
It is, we are told consistently, pay off your debt, get rid of that debt. Debt is, is a killer, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to have that debt. And I think, but you'll tell me, that if you didn't have this option of public service loan forgiveness, that would be true. You'd want to pay down your student loans quickly. But you tell me, is that no? That's okay. yeah. So, and for somebody in private practice or who's not going to work for a qualifying entity, that full pay down is the only alternative, right? But where where I certainly have found myself, and I think a lot of people do, is if I did that, if I pay because I am in an academic center, so I do qualify. If I were to pay down my loans aggressively, I'd lose this opportunity of getting a lot of it forgiven, and so it actually gives you the opposite incentive. So, would you say that anyone? who works in a qualifying center, whether that's a 501c3 or an academic center or for the government, should definitively, um, and of course we'll put the, the caveat out there that there's always exceptions, but that it's pretty good advice to plan to take advantage of public service loan forgiveness if you can, or is it does it depend? Uh, it totally depends. It depends on your loan balance and it depends on your expected salary. It depends on who you're married to, if you're married, how much they make, if they work. Um, so it's, as much as I'd love to give you Something more concrete. Uh, there's a couple of rules of thumb. Usually if if you owe less than one time your expected salary, um, forgiveness doesn't always make sense, with the exception being like if you're a resident and you're halfway there already. Um, if you owe double your expected salary, it's hard to make any repayment plan make sense. And you should probably try to get forgiveness however you can, up to and including like maybe I'm going to work in an academic center even though I had my dreams set on this private practice, but if I'm going to get this massive loan forgiveness, you know, you might want to consider that. Yeah. Okay. So what about all the talk about, you know, from, from a kind of insider's perspective, so to speak, do you think this program is going to stay around? Great question. So the way that Congress has handled this historically has been to grandfather in anybody who's qualifying in good standing on a plan as it currently exists. So the short answer is the, the cohort of 200,000 plus student debt is growing in our country at 17% per year. And it is what we would call like a financial public health crisis. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I would be surprised if Congress can ignore it for much longer. And there is some rumblings that they want to try to amend it in some way right now. Uh, There's been a few failed attempts in the past. But in the past, whenever they've done this, they've always left the door open for people who are uh, already, you know, moving along in a certain plan as it exists to continue in that plan. So Hypothetically, they could do anything. There's nothing that we know to a mathematical certainty. There's a couple things that I do think, and I actually I was at a, a conference last year where I heard a panel of experts talking about this very question, and a couple student loan attorneys, I didn't know if you knew that was a thing, but it is, um, they, they were weighing in on this question, and they said there's significant entrenched interest right now to, at least for people who are already in PSLF, allow them to get to the finish line. And there were two reasons that this attorney cited. The first is, I thought this was funny, congressional staffers qualify for PSLF because uh-huh. they're government employees. So literally, you know, your senator from your whatever state you're in, all the people that work for him, many of them might be moving towards PSLF. And Mr. or Mrs. Senator doesn't want to be the one to pull the rug out from under the feet of everyone in his office <laughs> because they're great. all moving towards PSLF. And the second is, you know, from a from an optics standpoint, you mentioned like the teachers and the firefighters and the nurses and others that aren't, you know, as high earning as doctors. They are in many ways, I would, I would guess, this is my hypothesizing. They are, they were the reason that this, uh, PSLF was, was created. And what we've seen is because the government is giving so much easy money and these forgiveness programs are as they exist, the, the cost of education has been ballooning out of control. Imagine if anybody could go get a car loan, 
for ten thousand dollars with you know with no like credit requirements or anything immediately every used car would cost ten thousand dollars and we're seeing that phenomenon play out in higher ed and and it's it is a a huge problem so this is a long-winded way of saying i think that and this is the way we're advising people i think that for people who are already have taken out debt and are making payments or moving towards pslf it is my understanding and expectation that those people have a high degree of likelihood to receive pslf as promised um in the future, it's hard to say. Uh, I would also say there's been a lot of clickbaity journalism, which is one of my pet peeves, mm. where um, a news organization will say, you know, and this was an NPR um, you know, story a few months back where like 99% of people denied for PSLF. And what they don't do is give the whole story of it's not like 99 people, 99% of people who had done everything right, who are on the, working for the right employer, right type of loans, right repayment plan, 120 payment. They didn't check all those boxes. Right. They were on the wrong repayment plan, or they didn't work for a nonprofit, and they just didn't know it, so they applied and were rightly declined. Um, you don't that, – that was not apparent in right. that communication. So what we're going to see is as time passes, the approval rates are going to go through the roof because right. people are getting savvy to the way these plans work. But uh, the I, I think that we can't persist. We, this, this, the way this program is now and the cost of everything going up, up, up in education, it, it cannot – continue to be subsidized to the extent that it is, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And so one thing I would suggest that I've done, and I I imagine you recommend this too, but you'll let me know, is that there is a form you can fill out. They recommend you do it once a year. You essentially put your uh, who you work for how how what you know whether you're full-time or not what kind of um you know all the different information about your job and then you send it in to your uh loan servicer and they will tell you whether you have made qualifying payments over the course of that year it's not a guarantee is my understanding the government won't say yes if you get those forms checked off you're guaranteed to be right but at least it gives you an idea that you're meeting the qualifications for public service loan forgiveness along the way that's right yeah that's called the employer certification form and it's definitely a best practice to do that annually and that way you can track your progress because what you're going to be able to do is say okay i've got like 36 payments towards pslf or i've got 48 payments and that way you don't get 119 payments in only to find out you're on the wrong repayment plan or some other like cataclysmic right. oversight. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be terrible. All right. And then the other question is, you mentioned the three uh, options for qualifying payment plans are repay, which stands for re- uh, repay as you earn. Revise pay, pay, as, you pay yep. as you earn. Pay as you earn mm-hmm. or pay. Mm-hmm. And then IBR, income-based repay. Mm-hmm. Uh how would one know which one of these is best for one? So this gets pretty technical pretty quick, but there's a couple of key differences that I can highlight. Um, one I mentioned earlier is the cap. So if you're going to make a lot of money, you probably don't want to be on a revised pay as you earn because there's no cap. So your payments are going to be very, very high. Um, it's important to note, once you you are earning enough so that your payments on repay are higher than the other capped plans, you can't get into them. So you can't say, oh my gosh, my repay payment is $3,200 and my pay payment would have been $1,800. So I'm just going to switch in. You can't do it once you've already blown through that ceiling. So you got to get onto the lower plan before making that, um, that switch. Um, another key difference is that the repayment calculation for each of these three is, uh, is a different multiplier. So for IBR, it's 15% of discretionary income is how much you're going to pay in a given year for your loans. For pay-as-you-earn and revised pay-as-you-earn, it's 10%. So all things being equal, if you made, you know, had a lot of debt and made $100,000 a year, your payment would be 33% higher on IBR versus pay-as-you-earn and revised pay-as-you-earn. 
So th- those are a couple of the key differences. And so why would one ever choose repay over pay? It sounds like the revised pay jour has no cap. Pay jour has a cap. So the interest subsidy is one reason that repay mm-hmm. is better. Uh, so it's you kind of need to say, okay, what are the characteristic qualities of each of these repayment plans? If you see them as a checklist, which ones do I absolutely need, like a cap or like an interest subsidy? Um, and then which one is ultimately going to result in the lowest cost? And then doing that bit of calculus, you sort of land on a plan. Gotcha. Okay. And again, that's a, a pretty technical thing. So th- there's, there are a lot of great resources out there. And it's not, it's not something that smart people who spend a lot of time can't figure out most of the time. Right. Great. All right, so that's really helpful. Um, let's talk about – so it seems like something really important to consider for anybody who would be qualifying. But let's talk about somebody who says, you know what, I know I want to do private practice or maybe I'm already in private practice. Um, so you don't qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Do you have any tips for, for fo- those folks in terms of thinking about their planning? The first thing I would say is kind of going back to the, what I said earlier is just because you think you're not going to do PSLF, that doesn't mean it's okay to do forbearance. Because we're still throwing away a lot of free money if we're not on revised pay as you earn, potentially. So that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is if you're, like, 100% sure that as an intern you want to do private practice, as a CA3 or a, a fellow, you may see other doors opening. And it's always a good idea to keep your options open, especially when it costs you nothing to do so. So what I would say is, and I, um, I have this conversation occasionally, is – do everything you need to do to qualify for PSLF. So as an intern, get in. If you're single, not making a lot of money, get on repay. Start making those payments. Send in your ECF, your employer certification form, and start getting that so that you can see every month those payments piling up. And then if you get to the end of your residency and you think, yep, I still want to do private practice, you have this bit of leverage. Um, Because you can go to a private practice and say, listen, I'm interested in private practice. Um, I've also got four years worth of payments piled up for PSLF. In six years, I'm going to get this massive windfall that I estimate to be X amount of dollars. I would love to come work for this practice. However, I feel a little bit beholden to the nonprofit world and then just kind of like stop and then put that on the desk and see what they do with it as far as, you know, the negotiations go. And that can be a really powerful thing because that's something a lot of people know about. Like PSLF is a strong incentive to work in this, in this world and, and private practices get that. And there are some times at which private practices will even have a, a third party run an analysis to say, how much is this prospect going to leave on the table uh, if they come work for us? And, and then they want to, you know, in good faith, they can gross it up, gross up their pay or give them a bonus or something to make, yeah. make that worth their while. Um, that's, that's really cute. So you can actually negotiate maybe successfully with a private practice to say, look, I'm giving up my chance at public service loan forgiveness. So will you take that into account when calculating my salary or my bonus? That's right. And it may or may not work depending on how much leverage you have and how bad they want you. But, you know, it always helps to have another arrow in your quiver. Um, But ultimately, if you're going to be in private practice, um, you're not going to have any forgiveness alternative, most likely, unless you owe a really, really lot of money. So the, the recommended course of action is probably going to be a full repayment. And that's probably going to look like making sure your interest rates are low which means usually refinance. So if your federal debt is at 6 7 8%, SoFi, or Credible, will maybe give you 5%. And they love lending to doctors, by the way. So they'll give you a great rate because you have great job security and you're a high earner and you're a low risk in that way. So you can take your federal debt, which is a high interest rate, and take it to somewhere where they're going to charge you less. And then what I usually recommend is lock in a fixed rate so you know exactly how much every month it's going to be. 
and you know it's like like a mortgage you know just the same amount and then you know after 10 or 15 years of large payments you're you're free yeah and so do you get the choice if you do that of like with a mortgage you can do your 15 year 20 year 30 year you can kind of you do yeah so it can be anywhere i think the longest i've seen is 20 some lenders it's a lender specific thing some may offer more than that and you can do fixed you can do variable there's different permutations okay and so now let's say that i do this and i sign up for a 15 year repayment plan mm-hmm. can i pay more and try to get it early you can and actually one thing that i usually recommend is as you persist in practice, especially after your first year, second year, third year as an attending, your credit profile gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Your debt to income ratio gets more and more favorable. Your credit score gets better. And so you're going to get better and better refinancing terms. So it makes, there's zero, this isn't like a mortgage where it's like $3,000 to get a new mortgage out of the blocks. It's, there's no cost to refinance. So there's nothing to prevent you from refinancing every year. Interesting. And in so doing, sometimes capturing these $500, $1,000 promotional sign-up bonuses to, to refinance. That's absolutely worth looking at. That's a really good tip I did not know about. Okay, great. Um, all right. And so what about fellowship? Let's say someone's trying to decide fellowship or not. Um, does doing extra training impact uh, the approach they should take to their loans? Good question. So um, interestingly, PSLF has the effect of subsidizing hyper-specialization. So if you're the the person who did four years of anesthesia and then you do three fellowships and then maybe you change your mind and you do like a surgery fellowship or something like that. And then you, so you could hypothetically get to the end of 10 years. Maybe you owe $300,000 at the beginning. By the end, you might owe $700,000 and you've only paid, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40 K total. As long as all of these fellowships are with a qualifying institution, there's nothing preventing you from then as a, you know, quadruple quintuple boarded physician who's right. finally about to start making money to have forgiveness happen right at that juncture and you never even have to make a significant payment right obviously that's a very extreme example but to sure. illustrate the point of the more specialized you are the longer your training is the longer your income adjusted payments are very low and the more forgiveness is on the table for you and that's nice because sometimes people think you know there's a financial question involved in doing extra training mm-hmm. doing a second fellowship switching specialties and you think, well, look, if I just kind of went ahead and started practice, I could make more money. But there's this little bit of uh, kind of nuance here because by keeping your salary low, one advantage is that you will pay less towards your loans if you're in a qualifying repayment plan, get your loans forgiven. We have people who do, for example, a pediatric residency, that's three years, a critical, pediatric critical care fellowship, that's another three years, and then come to us for anesthesia, that's another three years. Mm-hmm. So now nine years in, Right, they still haven't made anything but resident and fellow salary. They have one more year to go, and then they can get forgiveness. That's right, and they would they would be positioned to have that be an absolute slam dunk. Yeah, sounds great. All right, and then the last thing I want to ask you about is investing. This is something that you know, if we're lucky, maybe we have a little bit of discretionary income that, especially once we're done with training, that we would like to make some money off of. And these days, a checking, I mean, a savings account makes what? I don't even know, less than 1%. So do you have any advice for folks? What should we be doing if we have money to invest? How do we decide where to invest? Great question. There's a lot of ways to come at that question. And if you're a high earner, like like an attending position, um, you want to think about saving in a tax optimal fashion. So this is a little bit, I, I could talk a long time about this, but you want to make sure that you're reducing your taxable income as low as you can. So right out of the blocks, make sure you take advantage of every retirement plan through your company or through your institution that employs you that you can. Um, and then with the specific investments themselves, 
you want to think about cost. Cost is the main driver of investment returns. So when I say cost, I mean, what is the expense ratio of the ETF or the mutual fund? How much does it cost you on an annual basis to hold that position in that mutual fund? Uh, Historically, this has been 1% or 2% of the total amount of money. So if you had $10,000 invested with XYZ mutual fund, every year you're paying $100 to the fund manager. Um, Recently, uh, Jack Bogle passed away. He is the guy who started Vanguard many decades ago now, several decades. And uh, he started to – he catalyzed this sea change of costs being very, very high for money management historically to now you can get – market exposure for three basis points. That's 0.03%. Wow. So it's very important as you're thinking about what types of investments do I want to own, um, you want to look at cost and as well as diversification. So like what types of assets, asset classes am I owning? Do I, you want to own a little bit of everything to make sure that you're spreading your risk around and allowing your portfolio to grow over time. So you can do that very affordably. Uh, Vanguard is a great resource. Betterment is another one where you can go there and get a, a an asset allocation for very cheaply. And for the investments themselves, if you're paying more than you know 0.1% or 0.2%, I would argue you, you should have a darn good reason. And many times I think that reason doesn't exist. And if you're working with a, a fee-only financial planner, you know they'll help you set up an asset allocation and they'll do this investing for you and potentially manage the money. Uh, but you don't need a financial planner to get a good asset allocation. This is... This is much less complicated than student loans, I would argue. Um, so you can set up an asset allocation, just do a little bit of, I mean, a starting point, they call it like the 60-40 portfolio. Mm-hmm. So 60% stocks, 40% bonds. You could build that with two mutual funds from Vanguard um, that would cost you, call it five basis points each. So your five basis points all in cost. What used to cost you 100 basis points is now five basis points. And just do that. Uh, keep that. I mentioned that positive net cash flow number is the most important financial metric. Keep having extra money at the end of every month. Keep stuffing it in this portfolio. Rinse and repeat. Do that for 20 years, and you'll be financially free before you know it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So you mentioned the pre-tax, um, you know, kind of maximizing pre-tax. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, the, the, am I right that the reason for that is that uh, – so let's say that I put, you know, the federal maximum, I don't know what it is, $18,000 or something in my pre-tax 403B. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have to pay any tax on that now. It comes out before taxes. That's correct. Which therefore reduces my overall effectively taxable salary. Exactly. So, but then when I turn whatever, 65, when mm-hmm. I retire, when I decide to start taking money out of that mm-hmm. account, I pay taxes on it. But the idea is that I will have a much lower salary then. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we hope that you're still making, you know, three or four or $500,000 in retirement, but you probably won't be. So as your earned income decreases, then you're going to start drawing on your portfolio. And if, you know, you're going to have Social Security, but probably not a lot, you know, unless you have other business interests and things, your income is going to be much lower. So the the way that this is, this is sort of a wager that future tax rates when I don't have a job are going to be lower for me than they are now when I'm in potentially the highest tax bracket that, that we have in the federal tax system. So it, it's that bit of um, sort of saying we're going to pay taxes later, we're not going to pay them now because we pay a lot of taxes now at a very high rate, and we're going to pay at a lower rate later. So the overall cost to me will be less, hopefully, following that logic. Great. All right. This is super useful stuff, both for me for sure. I've learned a ton, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure for our listeners. Justin, anything else you want to add before we sign off? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I, just, I guess I'll close in saying I, I feel really lucky to do what I do. Uh, and I know when I've interviewed physicians on my podcast, I love hearing their stories of 
you know, what is it that really makes you get out of bed in the morning or a time when you're really kind of proud of the work that you've done. And I, I think I would have loved to have been in medicine, but I can't handle the blood. So I wouldn't have gotten very far through med school, but I, uh, I feel really, really privileged and lucky to, to be able to partner with, uh, clients and other friends whom I talk to and through the podcast by extension to, to help people understand like, what are my goals? What do I want out of life? And how do I meaningfully move towards those and build a life that I'm going to be happy with and do it in a way that's financially optimized so I can provide for my family and, and have a, you know, a, an existence that I'm going to be proud of. I, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world to be able to do that every day. So that's awesome. I'm so glad. And it's really uh, a pleasure to have gotten to know you and to have you on the show. I will say Justin, uh, is the host, as I said, at the top of the show of the anesthesia success podcast, it's available for free. So go check that out. And Justin, the website to get there is, uh, anesthesia success.com. Hopefully you can spell anesthesia. I've gotten good <laughs> at spelling that over the last couple of years. Uh, I routinely misspell it, uh, just because my fingers don't type it correctly, but I think by now my spell checker picks it up. So anesthesia success.com is Justin's podcast. If you want to get in touch with Justin because you have some questions or if you live in the Philadelphia area and you want to uh, you know, get his uh, services or just ask him for advice on maybe anyone he might know wherever you live who could help you with your financial planning, we'll put his contact information in the show notes uh, as well as some links to some of the things, um, the resources that he recommended. Justin, thanks again. Great to have you on the show. Jed, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. That was fantastic. As I said, I learned a ton and I hope you did too. Go to the website. Let us know what you thought. You can leave a comment. Everyone can learn from what you have to say. And if you want to get a hold of Justin, as I said, we'll put his contact information in the show notes. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And, of course, if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much to all of you who are already patrons, and of course to anyone who has made a direct contribution, which you can also do by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Justin Harvey, I'm Jed Walpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.